How we doing, Fredonia Hill? Uh, first of all, uh, really cool space. Space isn't everything, but this is cool what you've done with the place, I assume. Um, but um, man, what, what an honor to be worshiping with you uh, all the way back to the Back Row Baptist in the balcony uh, to call, I'm assuming, college students. Did I get that right? You got that? Okay. Yeah, we're college kids. Yeah, we're up too late. It's okay. Man, what an honor it is to be here in Nacogdoches this weekend. As Nathan said, I was um, here on, uh, with um, our band, 317 Collective, speaking for Winter Retreat. And uh, man, it was cool. First Baptist was hosting down the road. We had over, it was six churches, over 150 teenagers in the room lifting up the name of Jesus all weekend, which uh, for my money is the best thing on the planet. Uh, I get emotional even thinking about it. And man, I really missed it in 2020 and 2021 as we just like canceled event after event after event after event. And to kind of be back in the mode of getting to be in those moments together. And I, I truly believe that it only takes one moment in the presence of God to change a life forever. And so that was our prayer this weekend and coming to Nacogdoches that, man, that, that one moment, that there would be one life that would be changed forever, um, not because of who we are. In fact, I've been reflecting on this a bit. Like, I don't want to be a remarkable speaker or anyone that's ever remembered for the things that I've done. I want to be remembered for the things that Jesus does through me, um, that he would be so gracious to use me, to bring me to different places, to give me a microphone uh, to put Jesus on display in hopes that he would continue and knowing that he will continue to change lives and build his kingdom. Uh, I, I am a husband of, of, of one wife, uh, Jody. Uh, Jody, sorry, that was weird. <clears throat> sorry, di- didn't mean it like that. Um, Jody is my wife. Uh, we live in Burleson, Texas, which if you are familiar with the Metroplex, that's just, just south of Fort Worth. We're, we're a small town, um, at, we're a suburb who's acting like a small town right now. We're kind of on that precipice. 15,000 people have moved to Burleson in the past 10 years, and they're expecting another 20 in the next 10. So we are growing. Uh, I serve at First Baptist Burleson as a student pastor, uh, which means I work with 7th through 12th graders as my profession. My wife is a teacher in the local school district. She's an 8th grade English language arts teacher, and she started uh, a middle school dance team at the middle school in town. So she's really the talented one in the family. And we are, um, our family vision, our family goal is to be about the next generation. It's why we do what we do. It's, it's what drives us and why, uh, who we are and what our family does. I have two daughters, uh, Sloan, who is a four-year-old. It's 11.22 right now. And she's been up for four hours and 22 minutes. And she's been talking for four hours and 22 minutes. Uh, I love Sloan. She's a big old ball of energy. Uh, she will talk and she will go nonstop. She, she got rid of naps at two years old because the Lord hates us. Um, and so we, we didn't, um, we've not been napping for a long time, so we do quiet time, which is actually like, please, mommy and daddy need quiet time. Will you go upstairs for a couple hours and give us some space to breathe and, and don't come out of your room. Just don't mess anything up, but don't come out of your room. Uh, she is a joy. We're starting kindergarten in August. Uh, I'm getting old and I'm terrified of that, but it's gonna be fun. And we've got a, an 18 month old. She's born in August of 2020 uh, named Sutton. So I'm a girl dad to the core. And Sutton, big, big news in the Morrow household this week, uh, took her first three steps without us, right? Um, get this, the joker, she would like, be in the middle of the room and just like stand up and then wave and then sit down and crawl. 
So she'd been doing that for like four months. We're like, hey, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. No. So my my youngest is the stubborn one of the family. And uh, man, I I miss them this weekend, but they're at home having a great time with grandma. uh, And my wife is very, very busy doing things with with dance this weekend, actually. So uh, Kendall, thank you for having me and for trusting Nathan to have me here because I know that's that's a big thing. And um, I'm excited to preach the word this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, open up there on your phone or uh, in paper form, good old-fashioned Bible. Exodus chapter 17 uh, will be in verses 8 through 15, or 8, 8 through 13 this morning. Exodus chapter 17, 8 through 13. What I really dig about this church, and what's very, very cool, is I'm looking across the congregation, is you are a, a multi-generational church. It's very apparent, too, that you've, you've gone out of your way to do things to serve the next generation and to set things up in a way that you can be ascending church. And here's what I mean. Particularly with college students, you get them for four to five years, which is an incubator for doing some incredible things. But then what you're doing is you're pouring into them and then sending them out to do even bigger and greater things beyond the walls of Nacogdoches all across the ends of the earth. You've got... Faces, men and women of all different generations sitting in this room this morning, all coming with one mind and one purpose to serve Jesus Christ. But what I want to explore today and talk about is this, that, that it's possible, it's entirely possible to be a multi-generational church and yet miss out on the fruit of being a truly intergenerational congregation. And I believe that for Fredonia Hill to continue to move forward and continue to thrive, that, man, your biggest identity here is to be a church who is about being intergenerational, about the next generation, about sending and training up and sending out more and more and more. And in light of that, I believe that this morning that we need some hand raisers in the room. So with this in mind... Let's turn to the word of God, Exodus chapter 17. We're gonna come to a story of Moses. And if you'll recall your your, um, knowledge of the Exodus, you've got the people of Israel who uh, really went into slavery in Egypt through the story of uh, Joseph and Jacob redeeming his people. They come in underneath the care. Uh, You see Pharaoh, kind of a generation of Pharaoh flip. And the blessing that was on this family then becomes kind of a curse because they get afraid of the Israelites because the Israelites are being fruitful and they're multiplying in every way you can think. And so what you have is um, the, the, the people of Israel then put into harsh slavery and then God calls this young man named Moses to be his instrument for bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And so Moses does just that. And as you're picking up the story here, the, the, the Israelites are in the wilderness. And they've seen some really incredible things. Just a few chapters back in chapter 16, literally God rains bread to provide for them, manna, bread from heaven. Uh, Just a few verses back, you see God split a rock and provide for his people because they're grumbling because we're people, right? But God continually in his faithfulness has been providing and doing miraculous things through the people as he's guiding them through the wilderness, providing for them along the way and teaching them how to live as the people of God. And so we pick up in verse eight of chapter 17, where the word says this, then Amalek came and fought with, the, with Israel at Rephidim. 
And Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with his sword. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God of victory. Thank you that you're a God who is intentional. God, I pray in this space that you would open up our minds and hearts, that we would look more like Jesus than we did when we walked in the building. And God, that you would form and shape us into his image alone. God, would you raise up some hand raisers across the congregation this morning? And I pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So text this morning, pretty easy story, right? Five verses here in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, and what we see is this is not a, a fight that is actually fought by any one individual. There's actually many different parts. So let me kind of give you the key players this morning. The first of which is, is Joshua and the army who are actually doing the dirty work, fighting the battle down below. This is actually the first mention of Joshua in the Bible. He is the son of Nun. He is Moses' assistant. Eventually, he will be Moses' successor. He's a military leader whom God chose to lead the Israelites in the conquest of Canaan. And so you see Moses tell Joshua, his military commander, uh, select some men. We're gonna go out and we're gonna fight against Amalek. And so Amalek is the, the Amalekites. You see them throughout scripture. This is an enemy kingdom that the people of Israel are fighting and opposed, uh, they're opposed against Israel in different key times in biblical history. And so Joshua in verse 10 does exactly what Moses tells him to do. He selects his men and he goes out and he's battling the Amalekites down the hill. Now, second part of kind of key players in the story is Moses himself, who is kind of the central point, humanly speaking, of the action that has happened. He is, he is the cog in the system because while Joshua goes down to battle, Moses positions himself on a hilltop. Now, to this point in scripture, we have seen that Moses is actually a great leader. He's um, been, a, he was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. He was a prophet and a lawgiver. He was an author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He was a prince, a shepherd, a leader of the Israelites, a buffer between God and the people uh, of, of Israel. He was obedient to the will of God, but in all of that, he was also weak and frail. And he actually did some things to bring a lot of trouble on himself because he was a knucklehead like you and I. He was a sinner. And yet through all of his weaknesses, through all of his strengths, the most important thing to know about Moses is that he was set apart by God to do his work and to lead his people. This was a man marked by the God of the universe to do his work. And on this occasion, Moses positions himself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand. And it's good to note here that Moses was actually acting as the standard bearer of Israel. He was also their intercessor. So he's praying for the success and the victory to crown their arms down the hill. And as long as Moses' hands were raised 
In supplication and in reverence to God, Joshua and the soldiers prevailed. But when his arms fell, the Amalekites prevailed. And what we see in verse 12 is that Moses' hands grow weary. Can I be honest? My hands are already growing weary and I've only held my hands up for like 15 seconds. Can you imagine Moses knowing the part that he plays in this story, fighting through the pain of hours and hours of holding his hands up to be the player, the, the cog, the one that makes it go. And his hands grow heavy and as he lowers his hands, he sees his own flesh and blood at the bottom of the hill begin to be overtaken by the enemy. Enter the scene, Aaron and her, the hand raisers, which is really where I wanna focus my attention this morning. You see, what happens around Moses, one of the clearest truths of scripture about Moses is that while he was a great leader, while he was a man who had faith in God, in fact, he's actually listed in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, Moses is there. So we know he's got a special something, right? But while he had all of this going for him, Moses did not do what God called him to do by himself. See, God uses his brother and his sister, his wife, his father-in-law, countless others to help accomplish the plan and purposes of God through his servant, Moses. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. You see, they take a stone, they put it underneath Moses, and as he sits on it, Aaron and her on either side actually physically raise his arms, keeping his hands steady until sunset so that Joshua overwhelms the Amalekites below and wins the battle. So church, this morning, I wanna ask you, are you a hand raiser? Are you a hand raiser? I think there's two key components that can help you answer that question. And, and those two things are this. I, I believe that hand raisers uh, are, have proximity and they have purpose. So let me explain this. Um, hand raisers have proximity and there's two elements to this. There's a vertical proximity with God and a horizontal proximity with others. First uh, John 5, 1 says this, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ born of God, whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Church, hear me out. You will not be a hand raiser for the kingdom of God if you have not first given your life to Jesus Christ. You cannot do that. Furthermore, you will not be a hand raiser for the kingdom of God if you're not actively seeking the Lord in personal, daily, consistent worship. I talked to the students this weekend about this a bit. And the fact that, especially in the student ministry world, we live for camp and we live for disciple nouns and we live for these mountaintop moments. We get in this cycle where you, you come off of a winter retreat and then you begin to think for the next moment where you can go to the mountaintop. But the reality is so much, so much more of life is lived in the valleys down from the mountain. And, and here's the truth is if we will take seriously seeking after God, in our personal moments, in our quiet moments, in our house, in our seat, at our dinner table, if we will take moments of personal worship and bring them into corporate worship environments, then we will really worship the Lord in spirit and truth together corporately. 
Yes, mountaintop experiences are amazing and feeling the closeness to God, but the real magic happens when you are intimately in relationship with God in your everyday walk, seeking for consistency in his word and through prayer and letting the Holy Spirit do that work in you. I think one of the reasons that we lose sight of this is we just get busy. Oswald Chambers wrote this in one of his devotionals. He says, we slander God by our very eagerness to to work for him without knowing him. Can Can I confess something this morning? I'm a chronic overworker. I'm the guy, um, so rest to me, I, I love time at home, I do, but I hate time sitting idle. Anybody? Like, like I, feel, <laughs> I found one, he just belly laughed and his wife went, <laughs> which by the way, um, my wife would do that too. So I, I'm the guy who's like, man, um, day off, Saturday, it's 50 degrees, 60, it's winter, whatever, in Texas, it's springtime. Let's do some yard work. Let's get the house cleaned up. Let's do the laundry. Let's do all this. Oh, let's, uh, while I'm at it, I'm gonna do all this while I'm also smoking some ribs on the smoker because I'm not doing enough at one time. I need to do more. Like I need to take this eight hours where I have nothing to do and make it as productive as possible. And I, and I will go, 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 go on a day of rest trying to dimper. Like I wanna serve you and make sure I do as much as possible to help make your life at home comfortable and sane and, and also to serve my family. And yet, in all of the hustle, I've got a wife who, who her definition of rest is probably more sane, which is give me a book, put me on my couch, don't bother me. And so in the hustle, oftentimes I, I confess and I admit, and I don't like that I have to get to this point. I'm, I'm a guy, it takes me a while to figure things out, but there are, are moments where I'm going and going and going and serving and serving and serving. And she says, hey, stop it. Look at me, hold my hand, just be with me. I don't need you to do more. I need your presence. I need you to spend time with me. Now hear me out. Some of this in the room, myself included, were so eager to do the work for God and of God that we actually sacrificed the daily discipline of just knowing him, of being in right vertical proximity with him. See, I wanna see hundreds of hand raisers across this congregation step up. I wanna see hundreds of hand raisers across the state step up and jump in, but may it not be at the expense of you consistently putting in the effort to know God better, putting in the time, setting it aside, making that relationship a priority of digging into his word and learning and letting the Holy Spirit mold and shape your heart. Again, in 1 John chapter five, it says this, by this, We know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. See, when we are in right vertical alignment and proximity with God, then the natural overflow of our lives will be a horizontal proximity with others. 
a closeness to other people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is where I revisit that idea of it's possible to be a multi-generational church and not make an intergenerational impact for the kingdom of God. You see, it's vital for younger people to see the generations ahead of them loving and serving Jesus because people become pathways to Jesus. Uh, in my church, I'm, I'm crazy. So we... Um, we took our Sunday school hour, a group hour with our student ministry. And I said, you know what? This is what it's about. And so what we did is, is we, we hyper-focused our attention with our teenagers on getting them into serving roles on a Sunday morning. So if you watch a stream of First Baptist Burleson on a typical Sunday morning, 100%, I can guarantee you this morning, unless COVID wrecked us, which that comes and goes. But um, the camera... Three cameras in the room, teenager, teenager, teenager. This is scary. The, the, the switcher, so there's this thing where you can switch cameras, like what view is there? Teenager, 15 years old, max. With the keys to the, to the, to the worship service, that's terrifying at times. You got teenagers playing drums, teenagers playing guitar, raising up the next generation of worship leaders actively on Sunday mornings, teenagers making coffee, serving coffee, teenagers holding signs, welcome to church, teenagers teaching, get this, the next generation of children in Sunday school, getting to not only soak in and think about a lesson, but then apply it. Now, now the madness behind that method is that we believe in this horizontal proximity, that when my teenagers, our teenagers, are serving alongside a trusted adult in children's ministry, that proximity itself, that is a relationship that's formed, that if that adult loves and serves Jesus, then the natural overflow of who they are will just kind of get on this teenager. And they'll begin to replicate some of the things that they see in someone who loves and serves Jesus and begin to put that into practice to where then you make a generational impact on serving in the kingdom of God, because I believe that people become pathways to Jesus. Richard Ross, a mentor of mine, is a mentor of hundreds of student pastors across the state and nation. He's at Southwestern Seminary. He wrote a book 30 years ago called Student Ministry and the Supremacy of Christ, where he said this, students who have heart connections with at least five significant spiritually alive adults have the best opportunity to develop a sustainable, alive faith embracing the supremacy of Christ. The heart of the Christian faith is a relationship, a relationship between a triune God and a believer is defined by the truth of Scripture. So it should come as no surprise that relationships are also at the heart of spiritual transformation. To be, be a hand raiser, you must be in close proximity to God, but also others in the congregation. And the reality is to do that, you're gonna have to live with purpose. To be a hand raiser, you must live with purpose. And this is an intentionality, which first of all means intentional, being intentional with your support. So think back to the Exodus test. In that little moment, it's just a sentence, right? Where Aaron and her come up and they begin to lift hands and they find a rock and they kind of 
make it happen, right? And just think of that split second, all the things that had to go through their, their mind of not only why they're gonna support Moses, but how they're gonna support Moses. Like they had to find a, a, a boulder that was large enough to support him and roll it up a hill, right? And, and get it into place. They had to do so quickly because every time Moses lowers his hand, this is their flesh and blood at the, at the, down the hill that's losing life. So they've got to act quickly. They've got to act decisively. They had to account for the fact that they were gonna be there for a long time. The text says they ended up there until the sun went down. That's a long time. So you can't just, you have, to, you have to really think through how you're gonna do this. Moses and Aaron and Hur didn't just support Joshua. They, they see them as their flesh and blood, their own kin, their vital part of the people of God. They see the need that is there. And so they are intentional in how they support Moses, but also how they're, in, they're supporting the people down the hill. Church, it is not enough for the congregation to just be supporters of the next generation. As a congregation, we need to see the next generation as our students. Students, it's not enough for you just to be supporters of the congregation. You need to see the congregation as your congregation. This is a church family put here for a time such as this to do the work of God in and through Nacogdoches, Texas. You see, there's a difference in the mentality of ownership versus being merely a renter. You know where this really clicked for me is when I bought my first home. So um, I, you don't have to raise your hand over here, but I'm, I'm sure there's at least one of you. Um, I was a slob in college. My wife just amen from Burleson Tech. Like there were, there were moments where it was like, Ooh, and it wasn't just me, it was my roommates too, right? It's because we, we lived in this house and, and that's why it's, it's tough to own a house that college kids are just rent from, right? It's like, dude, they're, they're learning how to live life. And so I, like, I was learning how to do dishes very slowly and how to do laundry and all these things. And so you walk in our house and they were like, man, what does that smell? And where is it coming from? And why is it here? Now, fast forward about, about seven to 10 years later and my wife and I are buying our first home and that, that shift happened very, very quickly when I had to think about pest control and I had to think about um, renovating things and I had to think about, man, fixing up and um, keeping things clean and organized and here's why we do this for that. And, and the mentality just shift. It became personal. It became something that I was was deeply meaningful to me to make sure that my home was a place of refuge, that it was clean, that it was organized, that there was, it was something I took pride in. So spiritual ownership means making discipleship personal. It means investing in relationships across generational lines being intentional with your support and what that looks like and also being intentional with your effort. And can I, can I take a moment here to press into my generation? So millennials and younger. So I'm 32 years old, 32 years old. That's the Aggie math there. This is 2002. I turned 33, this is something. Uh, we'll call it 32. <laughs> millennials in the room. Nothing gets me fired up when, when I hear us, millennials and younger, when I hear us complain about the lack of spiritual mentors and disciples in our lives, you know why? Because I, I see people 
and I know they're there and all they're waiting is for someone to come and find them. Be intentional with that. So here, here's what I mean. Anytime I've seen somebody who just oozes Jesus in a way that I want to emulate, that I want to learn from, that I want to sit underneath, I've walked up to them or I've texted them or I've gotten their number and called them and said, hey, my name is Daniel, I'm a student pastor. Uh, just curious, I'll pay for it. You wanna go get some lunch? Ain't, ain't a single person in this room who doesn't like to eat. Ain't never had a single person say, eh, you know, I'm not gonna eat for the next year. Like it doesn't happen, right? So you be intentional with your effort and you ask, hey, I, I just wanna spend some time with you and learn from you. I wanna sit underneath you. Can we go get a cup of coffee? Can we sit underneath? And I can tell you some of the most influential people in my life are people that I just approached, got over a little bit of stage fright and said, hey, I, I, I just would love to get to know you a little bit better and hear from you and, and learn from you and, and get to know you and stepped out of that comfort zone and was intentional about stepping into there, carving out time and energy and in my schedule to make time for them to then get to, to learn and glean. And you'll never, you'll never know the kingdom impact that may come from single conversations like that and relationships that can build from that. So wherever you are, whatever stage of life, be intentional with your effort. Maybe you're on the other side, right? And, and you're like, man, I, I, I love our teenagers. I love our college kids. And I, I wish there was a way for me to make an impact. I can guarantee you, your college pastor and your student pastor are like, please come talk to me. I've got hundreds of them that need Jesus that I would love to connect you with and put you in a relationship with. Let's step across that line and be a church who, who goes beyond just thinking the good things but actually putting them into practice. So maybe you are in your 20s and you have a new baby on the way and you have a new house. You're recently starting a new job. Maybe you just moved to Nacogdoches this year. Man, it can be difficult. We're busy people. But find time to invest in someone a few decades with more experience under their belt. Yeah. Maybe you're on the other side of that. You're, you're 80 years old. You've lived in Nacogdoches your entire life. You've consistently supported. You'd give the shirt off your back if you could for the next generation. Hear me out. Thank you. Thank you. I've been a youth pastor for a long time. I know that some of these events, winter retreats, camps like that, don't happen without financial support. People who are, who are ready to physically, to physically support students to get them to places. But I think there's something more and so much deeper than just throwing money at something. I, I want you to meet and share your experiences, share your heart with students that you're sending to camp, that you're sending to winter retreat that you sit down and get eyeball to eyeball and hear their story and know how God is moving in them, that you would pray deeply and be intentional about that. Like, what would it look like if we were intentional this year with our support of one another, both young and old, and intentional with our effort with one another, if we were truly hand raisers? One of the most impactful moments in my life, I was in seminary. This was uh, the spring of 2013, I was on staff at Travis Avenue as, a, as a, an intern. And for some reason, I thought it would be fun to get up at 6 a.m. on Tuesdays and go to a men's prayer breakfast. Uh, and something kept pulling me back. I don't exactly know what, what it was, probably the whole Holy Spirit. I don't know what, what humanly speaking was doing that, but I kept getting up, kept going. And I'll never forget sitting in the room one, one spring, cold, chilly morning on a Tuesday, and I'm sitting there with men, most of which are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. 
I, I am the young guy and the only young guy in the room. And our pastor that day kind of went off script. He said, hey, I had something planned, but, but I think it could be really meaningful this morning just to spend a few moments, talk about our thankfulness. We're thankful for God, but also share our story. I want to hear, when did you start walking with Jesus? What is he doing in your life now? And I sat in that room, I was 23 years old. And I sat in that room and, and I, I listened as man after man after man began to share their testimonies. You know, I'm 80 years old. I started walking with Jesus 60 years ago. You know, I'm, I'm 80 years old. I've been walking with Jesus for 75 years. And again, I'm not the smartest dude in the room. And I began to do some math. Okay, I'm 23. This guy's not just been alive. He's been walking with Jesus for three times my lifetime. This, this guy has been walking with him four, like how, in the, how does that math work out? Four times my life, like man, just across the room and they're sharing of the goodness of God and their thankfulness and all that he has done in their life and why they're hopeful. And it was deeply meaningful for a young student pastor in training who's just kind of figuring it out, still riding the training wheels, that these men who had walked so faithfully with God for so long would take an hour out of their day once a week to be in a room to take in a 23-year-old and just sit with me and pray with me. Are you a hand raiser? Kind of in closing, three, three little thoughts here to answer this question. Is this, that some of you are not hand raisers in this room simply because you've not given your life to Jesus. You cannot be spurring other people on towards the things of God if you have not joined the journey yourself. See, I love, I love Jesus because I am, I am a sinner. And because of my sin, I deserve death, eternal separation from God. And yet Jesus, the son of God, stepped out of heaven, laid down everything that he had so that he could live the life I cannot live, died the death that I deserve, was killed for that, rose three days later in victory, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I may have life in him. And this beautiful passage in Romans 10, Romans 10, 9, which says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So maybe that's you this morning. And you've, you've never actually trusted, you've never confessed Jesus is Lord and believed that God raised him from the dead and said, you know what? I'm gonna repent of my sins, lay my sins at the foot of the cross, physically turn away from them and I'm on a journey with Jesus now, whatever that looks like, step by step every single day. Maybe today is the day you make that decision for the first time. Others of you are not hand raisers simply because you're not in proximity to people who look different than you who are older or younger. You're not stepping out with faith and purpose to navigate an awkward introduction or to get to know someone over a cup of coffee. And maybe you need to make the commitment to do that this week, to reach out. Some of you in this room, uh, you've already been living this. This whole thing is just like your life. I just talked about your life. Thank you for that. 
My encouragement is please, please keep raising hands because your impact will be a legacy of discipleship that long outlives you here on this earth. So that's the challenge today. What is it going to take to be a hand raiser in 2022? Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word, for who you are, for your faithfulness to us. God, would you draw us closer to you this week, but also closer to one another? And God, would you help us to be hand raisers for your kingdom? God, I pray this in Jesus' name.